Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. Well, we do live in incredible times, don't we? Like we think about the advancement. Just this past week, I read about how Elon Musk's company currently have Neuralink, a a computer system wired to the brain of a monkey, and the monkey is playing video games with its brain. Like crazy times we live in right now, isn't it? I mean, technological advancement. You think of the way that civilization has advanced even in the last hundred years. You think about automobiles. I mean, in a hundred years, in a little more than a hundred years, we've gone from horse and carriage to the Model T to now Teslas and electric cars. I mean, even my Hyundai, if I press cruise control, will drive itself down the highway. It will slow down and speed up. It will take turns. I can sit there and read a book. It's unbelievable the advancement and the improvement that we've seen in the last hundred years. You think about in the area of communications. Just a hundred years ago or a little more on Signal Hill, you know, they through Morse code that through the air across the ocean for the first time ever, they sent the message to England. That was amazing. And now we live in a time where literally we can talk to anybody through FaceTime or text or email in a, at the click of a button. I mean, it's incredible the things that have been made and improved in the last 100 years. That said, I want to suggest to you today, I want to give you an idea, and that is this, that every so often, somebody will create something, they'll, they'll make something that needs no improvement that actually was right the first time. They got it right the first time. Now you might be thinking, well, what's an example of that that's just never changed and never improved? Well, there are a few that come to mind immediately. Think about the paperclip, for instance. There is no substitute for the paperclip. Even though we live in a paperless society, increasingly so, that patent that was put out in 1860 for the paperclip has not been adjusted or changed. The technology was sound the day it was made and it, and it, it holds its own even today. You think about Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, back in like 1880, they came up with their recipe for Coke. And people have been enjoying that very recipe since 1886. And then actually in 1985, Coke made a huge mistake by introducing, anybody remember? Anybody old enough out there today? New Coke. Do you remember New Coke? And the world revolted. They said, what are you doing? You got it right the first time. And so Coke apologized and went back to old Coke because they did it right the the first time. Every so often, something gets developed that is just right. They had it right the first time. Think of the sewing needle. Do you know that that technology, the sewing needle, has been around for thousands of years and has not changed? You think of chopsticks. People have been using chopsticks for thousands of years. That technology has not changed. Now, for me, I'm a fork guy. I'm not even above going to an Asian restaurant and asking them to kindly bring out a fork. I'm for some of that technological advancement sometimes. I tell you all this to tell you that every so often, my premise is this, that every so often something gets created that needs no adjustment. It was done right the first time. And I want to give you that idea because it goes with the premise in Revelation that I want us to see today. And I'm going to give you my premise up front. And the premise is this, that when God created us, when he created the world, he got it right the first time. When he created us and when he created this world that we live in, he designed it right the first time. Now, some of you might be thinking, really? Like, 
okay, that sounds nice. It sounds like a good thing to say, you know, good job, God. But, but really, you think, you think there's no room for improvement? Like there's no, there's no room out there for adjustment? I mean, you think about our world, you think about economically, environmentally, politically, socially, like there's a lot of dysfunction out there. You're really sure that he got it right the first time. Or maybe you're thinking about not just like the macro world, you're thinking about the micro world, your world, thinking about some adjustments you'd like to see, some development and some advancement that you could use in your relationships or maybe your health or maybe some other area and you might question that statement. You know, are you sure that he got it right the first time? And now the Bible wouldn't argue with you about the need for improvement and development. However, the Bible would reveal that the way for humanity, for creation, for civilization to find life and abundant life has already been made and it's been there from the start. And I tell you this because you're going to need to know this as we unpack what we just are going to take a look at here in the book of Revelation. Now, for those of you who are just joining us, we are in our second year of the book of Revelation. We've been studying the last book, probably the most confusing book of the whole Bible. And we've been studying it since January 2020. And we are at the halfway point uh, as of today. Can you believe it? We made it to the halfway point. And it's, it's not just cause for celebration because we're, we're getting somewhere, but it's actually cause for real study because we've learned something about the book of Revelation. We learned it from Daryl Johnson a couple weeks ago. He told us how when this book was, was when this letter was made, and in this type of literature, in this type of communication, you know, it's actually structured differently. That the message is actually packed into the middle. You know, for us, we generally put the main part of the message at the end. I'm going to do that for us today. That's how we've been taught to communicate. But in first century, they would often put things in the middle. And we are getting at the middle. And so we want to perk up today and say, what is the middle message, the main message of the book of Revelation that God is putting out there for his church to hear? We're getting there today. But in order for us to get there, we've got to first know where we've come from. So here's a real quick recap. For those of you just joining us, we've been trying to unpack and make sense of this book called Revelation. So here are a few Revelation revelations. Get, get, get what I did there? The book is not called Revelations. Just, just so we know that we're clear, the book is not called Revelations. It's called Revelation. It is not plural. There are revelations in the book of Revelation, but it is not called Revelations. Moving on. Here's what we've learned. First and foremost, we've learned that the book is an apocalyptic message. Apocalyptic meaning a type of literature with imagery and it's trying to show us something. It's a message of and from Jesus Christ. We've actually learned that the title of the book is called The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It is showing us Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is showing us something. And we've learned this. That the book of Revelation is not just some future message to be encoded. It's not just about things that will happen. It's also about things that are happening. That it is a message that is pertinent for the church at all times. And so as we have been reading it, we haven't just been saying, God, what did this mean for the first readers? God, what does it mean for someday in the future? We've been saying, Lord, what is it that you're saying to us? We believe that this matters to us now. It shows us, the book shows us what will be. It speaks of the future and it shows us what is presently hidden to us. The second thing we've learned is this, that it's a book about an unveiling. It's unveiling a message, a picture of ultimate reality. That's what the word apocalypse means, unveiling, showing what has been hidden. And it's showing us this reality. And the big idea is this, that grace 
rules. We have learned through this book that at the center of the universe, and this is a good point to, to, to put amen or put hallelujah, at the center of the universe, there is a throne and God is on it and God has revealed himself not as a mean, major, roaring lion, but as a lamb, an all-powerful, all-knowing, benevolent, grace-filled, loving, merciful lamb who is calling all people to himself. That's some good news. And that's what Revelation shows. Then it tells us this. Here's another important point. We're going to need this. That the lamb has a plan. He's got a plan. He's got a will. In fact, it's represented in the, in the book of Revelation as a scroll, a scroll that at one point was rolled up. But now that the lamb has it in his hands, he is unfolding it as we speak. And his plan is this, to reconcile and restore all things. Our God is not a destroyer. He is a giver of life and he is after abundant life and, and everlasting life. And so we've learned that the lamb's plan is unfolding as we speak and it's ultimately get this, going to end up in a new, everlasting, hell, sin, Satan, and death-free creation. That sounds good, doesn't it? That's what the Lamb's doing. He is eradicating sin, death, Satan, and demons, and destruction, and he is establishing his everlasting kingdom. That's what the Lamb's plan is. And ultimately, we have learned this, that God's desire is that all people would turn to him and be saved. And as we've seen the judgment happening, the judgment of sin, death, Satan, as we've seen God pressing in, this kingdom pressing in to remove the things that come against his kingdom, we have seen him doing absolutely everything he can to call people to himself. He's been issuing warnings and woes and trumpets saying, turn, turn back, come back to me, come and find life. And we have seen this throughout the book. And this is where we are as of today. We've come through now a revelation of Jesus at the beginning. We saw seven attributes that told us things about him. We've come through seven letters to the seven churches. And then we've come through this, the scroll with seven seals and the scroll's been open. And then we've come through seven trumpets. And now we've arrived and we've got to ask the question, what effect is this having on the world? Well, we're seeing first and foremost, devils and demons and sin and destruction. It is fleeing and flaring and God is dealing with it. But the question is, what's happening with people? And here's the thing that we've we got to notice today. Heaven, uh, we have a problem. There is a problem that we have been noticing. And that is this, that despite the woes and despite the warnings and despite the wrath and the judgment, the nations do not repent. Over and over, we've been seeing these things play out. The, the kingdom of God is pressing in. The lamb is on the throne and these crazy things are happening. I mean, we've got demon locusts and horsemen of the apocalypse and earthquakes and fires and famines and plagues. Craziness, but the result is not that people are turning to God. But in fact, their hearts are being hardened. Which is, which is, this is, this is the pattern that is emerging. We're seeing people's hearts be hardened. And it's showing us something that is true, that despite all the warnings and all the difficulty, the pain is not causing people to turn to God. Judgment and pain is not leading to repentance. And this is something that we've seen in the Bible. This is something that we've seen as we've gone through the book of Revelation. Did you notice it after the seventh, after the sixth seal, after the four horsemen of the apocalypse? And then we find on the sixth seal, there's the earthquakes and famine and destruction. And the result is not that people turned to God and repented. The result is this, that the people of the earth hid in caves 
They tried to escape God. And among the rocks and the mountains, they called to the mountains, not called to God. They didn't call out to the Lamb. They were calling to the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They're mistaken. They don't see the good news of the Lamb. And then after the sixth trumpet, what do we see? We just read it. We just read it in the end of chapter nine. That the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues and the demon locusts, what did they do? They did not repent of the works of their hands. The wrath and the judgment and the plagues is causing their hearts to be hardened. They aren't turning towards the lamb. And we've actually seen this. If you, if you have any kind of familiarity with the grand story of the Bible, you've seen this in the scripture. We see it in the book of Genesis when Sodom and Gomorrah, God judges Sodom and Gomorrah. And we find that after the warnings and after the opportunity to spare it, if they found a hundred or, or even 10 righteous people, they did not turn from their wickedness. And only one family was, even, was, a, was able to be spared. Hardened hearts. We find it in Exodus. Do you remember the story of Exodus when God brought plagues to Egypt to liberate his people, to set them free? What happened? What was the result to the Egyptians and the result specifically to Pharaoh? It wasn't that he turned favorably towards the God of Israel. What did he do? His heart was hardened, we're told. We're told in 1 Kings, if you know that story of how the nation of Israel turned away from the one true God and they started worshiping false gods, the God Baal. And the prophet Elijah comes and he says, we're going to close up the sky and there's going to be a drought for years until you repent. What was the result? The result was after three years, there were only 7,000 people in all of Israel left who worshiped the one true God. Everybody had fallen away and the famine was not calling them back. It was hardening their hearts and it took a sign of fire to turn the hearts of the people. This is a problem that we need to identify and this problem is unavoidable. It's been growing as we've been going through the book of Revelation. The problem is that we've already established the truth about God, that he's holy, he's righteous, he's getting rid of sin, he's getting rid of destruction and death and Satan, he's going to do away with it, and yet he fully desires that sinners like you and like me turn to him and are spared, we're saved, we're redeemed and restored by his grace and goodness. And so this is a bit of a conundrum. It's not working. This is not working. If judgment is the plan, it's not working. And this is a tension, this is a tension that the book of Revelation begins to craft and build, culminating at this point in the unfolding of the story. It, it has us right where it wants us. We are about to get a revelation of the grand and good plan of God to restore and redeem all things, to eliminate and establish his kingdom forever, and to save people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It is about to show us a revelation. Are you ready? It's, it's unbelievably cool. I, I've been geeking out on this all week and I want to show you this. We're going to do a little bit of a deep dive. So this is a great week just to open your Bible for a minute. I want to just unpack a couple things and then I'll wrap it up quickly. But here's the deal. I, I want to remind you again, God got it right the first time. Make no mistake about it. God made no mistakes about it. Revelation 10, what, what happened? Let's just give a real quick recap again. We find out in the end of chapter nine, people did what? They did not repent. Their hearts were hardened. And so the conundrum is the judgment is rolling out. Sin is being dealt with. And yet sinners are being swept away in the judgment and not drawn to the grace and goodness of God. And so we find at the end of chapter nine, people do not repent. And then what happens? We find chapter 10 begins 
And John, we find, hears a voice from an angel, or he hears the voice of the Lord, and he sees an angel, and look what happens. The angel says, there's no more delay. Now's the time. My kingdom is going to be established. And, and I, want, I want to point out a couple things to you. And the first is this. He said, then I heard a voice that I'd heard from heaven, and it spoke. What voice? The voice from heaven, the voice of God, the voice of the Lamb. And then we find out that there was a scroll and it says, take the scroll. What scroll are we talking about? We're talking about the scroll, the scroll that is the will, that is the word, that is the way. It is the grand plan of the lamb. And we find that he's told to do what? He's told that he needs to actually take it and he's told that he needs to eat it. He took it and he ate it. And then he's given a commandment. You... Maybe put that word in the chat. That's a very important word today, the word you. It said, you must prophesy again. Maybe if I turn this off, the, the brightness will come back. It said, you must prophesy again. So, so get this. We find that the angel comes, has a scroll, comes to John and says, here's the deal. Take the scroll, ingest it, take it in, eat it, and then you're going to proclaim the truth about the lamb. Now, now, why is that important? Now, imagine for a minute. Now, just imagine. John, John is hearing this. Go get that message from the lamb. Take the scroll. Take it in. And now get out there because the time is now. You are going to tell the nations. You are going to, you're going to prophesy. You're going to speak the word to the nations. Now, for John, this is starting to sound familiar. Remember, John is one of the disciples. Now, it would be daunting to think of the, the day and age that John and the first Christians were living in. It would have been very daunting to, to hear that commandment that you need to get out there and prophesy. But then John, so it, it tells us, he, he has this, this instruction and the vision then changes. He has another vision. Now, I don't have time today to unpack the whole thing. We're going to spend a few weeks on this in the coming weeks. But I want to give you a couple high points. It goes into a vision of a temple and two witnesses a temple and two witnesses. Now, what is going on with the temple and two witnesses that we find out uh, that John starts to speak about? He says, first I saw a temple and I was given a measuring rod. And I had to measure the temple. And we find that he, he does what? He, he, he measures it off and he measures that there's a limited space that's designated only for the people of God, and then there's space that's going to be trampled. And he tells us, what else did he tell, he tell us? He told us that it was going to be 1,260 days. What's 1,260? That's how many years? It's three and a half years. 3.5. That's an important number. Keep that in mind. 3.5 is half of what? Seven. Seven's an important number in that book. Just, well, that's, that's, worth, that's worth knowing. So there's this temple, the temple is important, and there's this idea of sacred, sacred designated space. There's going to be space that the Gentiles can access and go over, and space that remains untouchable. And then he talks about two witnesses. He says, I saw two witnesses as well. Now, now, what are the two witnesses? Are we literally talking about two individuals? Some, some people actually think it was Moses and Elijah. In fact, if you remember, he references that they're going to have power to shut up and close the sky. They're going to have power to call down plagues. And so some people have thought maybe it means Moses and Elijah. But in fact, let's, let's look a little deeper. What does it say? I saw two witnesses who were the two lampstands, it says. We've heard that before, haven't we? 
It said that they're faithful witnesses. We've heard that before already in this book. Do you remember the first, you remember the two churches in the first seven letters to the seven churches? There were two churches that were faithful witnesses. You remember? It was uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And those two churches were the ones that were staying faithful in the fire. They were staying faithful even in the midst of persecution and potential death. Now, this is starting to sound familiar. We also know that the testimony of two witnesses is required. That it takes two witnesses to actually establish a testimony. So, so bear with me. We're, we're also told that, again, there's lamp, lampstands. What is this imagery that John is seeing? What is the image? Now, for us, it seems a little confusing. We're not totally sure what it means. But for John, when he saw it, and for more specifically, for the first church when they saw it, they would have not thought, is he talking about the actual temple? No, and here's why. Because the temple was destroyed in, in the, at the time of this writing in AD 96. There was no temple in Jerusalem. The temple, the Christians believe, were who? The temple is us. When they heard that, the temple, they, they saw that vision of the temple, they would have thought, that's us. And then when they heard about the witnesses, they wouldn't have thought maybe Moses is coming back. Maybe Elijah's coming back. No, they would have heard about the lampstands and the testimony and the faithful witness and the, and the message to Smyrna and Philadelphia. And they would have said, this is us. This is talking about us. This, it's important for us to know. I don't want you to go any further. This all, the temple and the witnesses are a prophetic picture of the church. crucial that we see that. They are an image of the church. And the first Christians would have got that immediately that, oh, this is talking about us. Now, why is this important? Watch this. We're told what happens next. And we're going to look at this in detail. We're introduced to a beast. And we're going to check this out in detail in the weeks to come. In fact, the second half of the book of Revelation deals with the beasts and the powers and principalities and the devil. And it gets even wilder. It's going to be a ton of fun. But we're getting right down to the heart of humanity and how God is dealing with them. Watch this. We find out a beast comes against them. Powers come against the witnesses as they go out and they do what? They proclaim the testimony. Remember, John was told to eat this word, go out and speak this word, testify to the nations. And then we find out that they die in the street and the nations come around and what? Look at them and look at their dead body, the spectacle of these two witnesses. They're looking at it. Now watch what happens next. This is wild. It tells us after three and a half days, there's that number again. Why is three and a half important? It's half of seven. It's the middle mark. It's the turning point. It's the space by which things begin to shift and they're going unto God's purposes. It's that moment when things look ultimately dark that God is about to flip it and bring about the, his, his, his light and his life. It says after three and a half days, what happens? The breath of God, the breath of life comes in them and what happens? They are resurrected. Wow, this is sounding familiar, isn't it? They're resurrected. And it tells us, look, this, and here's the important part I want you to see. This is the whole point. I know I'm taking a minute to unpack this. But it tells us there was an earthquake, okay? They get up, they're called to heaven, they ascend to heaven, they're resurrected, they get eternal life. Now watch this. It tells us 7,000 people were killed 
in the earthquake. Now, 7,000, where did we hear that before? Did you know there was just 7,000 at the end of the, 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 the whole thing with Baal and the prophets back in Elijah? And then it says this, and the survivors were terrified, but there's this and here. They were terrified. They've been terrified the whole time. Something different's about to happen. They gave glory to the God of heaven. This is the middle mark of the whole book. This is the middle mark of the whole book. Why does this matter? Think about it again. Stay with me. This is, this is critical. John is told, take my word. Go and testify to my word. He gets a picture, a prophetic picture of the church rising up, stepping out and speaking the truth about the lamb. And as, as they do that, the nations are seeing these two bear witness to the lamb. And then what happens? The beast comes, powers come that try to stop it. And just when you think that they're dead in the street, the power of God who is greater, that is greater than death itself, raises them to life. And the spectacle of the power and grace of God in those two witnesses does what? It's the difference maker. It's the one time in the whole book of Revelation that people turn to God. It's not just because they're experiencing judgment or the darkness. It's because in the darkness, they saw two faithful witnesses. They saw the church step forth and speak the truth about Jesus. It's amazing. It's incredible. Here's the point. The point is this. The point of Revelation 10, it's, it's the Lamb's witnesses who win the world over to God, not judgment. Woo! It is the Lamb's witnesses. It's not until the church bears witness to the Lamb in the way of the Lamb that the nations repent. Did you notice what they did? They did the things just like Jesus did. They were prophets. They spoke the truth. They operated in signs and wonders. They stepped forward, even at cost to their own lives. It even took their lives. And yet they rose again because the breath of God breathed life into them and rose to heaven, protected and secure forever and ever because the life that God gives his witnesses cannot be taken away by any beast or power, not even death. And then we find the nations turn because they saw the goodness of the lamb in the light of the witnesses. This is incredible. This is the whole, this is the central message of the book of Revelation. It's not about how God's going to destroy all things. It's about how God's making a new heaven and a new earth. And he's calling everyone, inviting everyone to come because he's good and he's dealt with sin. But the way that people are going to hear that message is not through fear and not through judgment. It's through the faithful witness of his people. It's the message. I, I, I've been geeking out about that because that is not the message I heard in the first times I ever read the book of Revelation. And it's taken some real help. And, and I'm not just jumping at this conclusion myself. Look what, look what N.T. Wright says. N.T. Wright is the unanimous, foremost New Testament scholar on planet Earth. Look at how he, he contextualizes it. Throughout the book of Revelation, the call of God's people is to bear faithful witness to Jesus, even though it will mean suffering and quite possibly a shameful death. The seven letters of chapters two and three continually promise special rewards to those who conquered. This, as we saw, meant the people who, following Jesus, who himself achieved victory through his death, were prepared to face martyrdom rather than compromise. 
The result will be that the world looking on will at last be converted. This is the meaning of the powerful language at the end of verse 13 in chapter, uh, chapter 11. The martyr witness of the church, in the other words, will succeed where the plagues have failed. This is how the nations will come to glorify their creator. This is how the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. Suddenly, he says, out of the smoke and fire of the earlier chapters, a vision is emerging, a vision of the creator God as the God of mercy, grieving over the rebellion and corruption of the world, but determined to rescue and restore it and doing so through the faithful death of the lamb and now through the faithful death of the lamb's followers. The way stands clear for the glorious celebration at the end of the chapter, chapter 11, which rounds off the first half of this very carefully structured book. It's incredible. It's there. This is it. This is the message. It's this. It's the witnesses that win the world. It's the witnesses that win the world. That Jesus died and rose and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It is the witnesses that win the world. The message of revelation is, will the real church please stand up in dark times? Will the real church please stand up in dark times? Will you not lay back? Will you not sit back? Will you eat this book? Will you ingest this truth? And will you get out there and just speak life and speak grace and speak the truth of the Lamb to anyone who will hear it, even if it costs you your life? Because guess what? Even death cannot conquer it. Even death cannot conquer you. This is the message. This is the central message of the book of Revelation. And the first church, you think about the first church, AD 96, when this book was written, the Christians, they were facing death. They were facing unbelievable powers that were coming against them. And the message they would have hear, heard is this, that, hey, powers may come against you. The beast may come against you. The empire may come against you. It might even kill you, but you are ultimately untouchable. There is a part of you that belongs to God. And even though your body might get trampled, your soul and your spirit belongs to God and you will rise again and you will live forever. And not only that, that in your faithfulness to me, you will call all men to me through you. Unbelievable. And the, fir the first church would have heard this and they would have celebrated. They would have been invigorated. The promise of Jesus where he's basically telling us, I will win this world through you, through you. Don't miss your moment to shine. So are you catching it? Let, let me give us just three really quick observations. I'm almost done. In fact, I'm so almost done that David's going to play piano so that all you know that I'm, I'm landing the plane. But I want, I want to give you just a couple observations so you don't miss it. The, the main point is this, that we, the witnesses, are the ones that win the world to the Lamb. That he's doing it through us. Let me give you, let me break it down, break it apart for you really quick. Here's a few things I want you to see. First and foremost is this. You need to see the proclamation. See this, that God's kindness is what leads to repentance. It's his grace. It's his goodness that makes people say, I want to love and know Jesus. I need God. It is not fear. It is his kindness that leads to repentance. And the Bible tells us this. Look, judgment, although necessary to eradicate sin, does not win sinners. It doesn't. Mercy does. Love does. Love wins. Love wins sinners. Love was always the plan. And this is what the Bible tells us. God's kindness leads us to repentance. It's not, it's not the wrath. It's not the plagues. It's not the judgment. It's his kindness that makes us repent. Jesus told us this. 
Do you remember the parable of the two sons, the prodigal son and the elder brother? And Jesus told us about the prodigal son who squandered the father's wealth, who basically said, you know, screw you to his dad and completely messed his whole life up. And then he had a moment of revelation and Jesus used this, this, this little word picture. He said, when he came to his senses, he remembered that in his father's house, even the servants have more than enough to eat. AKA what? My dad is good. Why would I trade any, why would I stay out here in this mess when in my father's house there is plenty? He's good. His goodness calls us. God's grace calls the nations. God's goodness wins the nations. God's goodness is going to win your son back. God's goodness is going to win your family. It's his grace. It's his kindness that leads to repentance. And this was always the plan. Like, this is the important part you need to understand. This was always, the, the Bible tells us that the lamb was slain before the foundations of the earth. Do you know that God was not surprised when Adam and Eve ate the fruit? I know sometimes we think of it like, oh, God sees it and is like, well, now what are we going to do? You really messed this up. God knew that it would require not law to win the hearts of his creations. It would require love to win the hearts of his creations. And he knew that the only way that they are going to ever love him is if they know how deeply he has loved them. This is why it says in, in, in the book of 1 John that, that we love because he first loved us. See, fear does not bring about repentance. It doesn't work. Fear doesn't work in our own lives. Like, like think about, think about your, your health choices. Like, like some of you smoke. You know, you know that smoking's bad for you. That's not a newsflash. No one today is going to buy a pack of cigarettes and see the teeth thing on it and be like, oh man, this is bad for me. Better not. Fear is not enough motivation. It'll temporary, temporarily maybe have us adjust our behavior. But until our desires are overcome, until our loves are affected, we will not actually change. We know this to be true in our life, and it's true as our, in our relationship with God. I've seen it too many times. I've seen people have near-death experiences. I've seen people go through major tragedy and trial, and in fear, they will turn to God. And for a season, it looks genuine, but, but their love never is converted over to Him because they didn't have a revelation of the grace of God, of the Lamb of God, and it never took root in their spirit. And so they never actually latched into a love relationship with the lamb. It was just fear-based. And so what happens is over time, once things get less fearful, they fall away. I remember being in college. I had a friend that I played basketball with in high school. And I went to Bible college. I was in my second year at Bible college. I'd felt a call to ministry and I was all in. And this friend from basketball shows up as a freshman at school. And I remember talking to him saying, what on earth are you doing here? I didn't know you were a Christian. He goes, I wasn't. But then last year I had a car accident. I almost died and just fear of hell, man. Like, I believe there's a God. I believe that I'm not right with him. So here I am. I'm trying to get right with God. And, you know, that sounded right, but it wasn't six months later he was gone. And fell away from his relationship with God as far as I know. And the point is this, until you get a revelation of how deep the Father's love for you is, you're never going to turn to him. It's only his kindness that leads to repentance. It's only when we get a revelation of God's goodness and grace that we repent. When God chose to draw all men to himself, he didn't do it through pain. He did it through passion. Think about that. When God chose to draw all men to himself, he didn't do it through inflicting pain on us. He did it through passion. And that meant pain for him. God is good. 
God, someone needs to hear that today. Like God is good. And he is calling you. And he's calling you out of sin. Why? Because sin is bad for you. Not because it infuriates him. It's because it destroys you. He is good. He's calling you. Number two, see this. See the plan. It was always God's plan. God's plan was always and is always his people. God's plan has always been to rule, redeem, restore, and reconcile all things to himself through his people, through witnesses, faithful witnesses. That was always the plan. You see it. If we, did it, if we want to do a big Bible study, we do it. We go to Genesis chapter 1, right in the beginning. The Bible tells us that God made man and woman in his image. In the image of God, he created them. And then he commissioned them. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Get out there, make more. And then what else did he say? He said, fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it? I thought everything was perfect. I thought everything was perfect in the beginning. No, it was incomplete. There were things to be done. Things to be subdued and cultivated. We were in perfect union with God and with each other and sin corrupted that. But even after sin, what happened? Sin happens. And then you see in Genesis 17, God reinstates the plan through Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And through your nation, I'm going to bless every nation. I'm going to bless this whole world through you. It's always been the plan. We, we, could, we could hop right through the whole Bible. We find ultimately that the plan is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And then Jesus as the first fruits, as the new creation, what does he do? He turns to his followers and he says this in Matthew 28. He says, go and what? Make disciples of all nations. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It was always the plan. And then in Acts chapter 1, he says it again, you'll receive power, fire, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. There's that word again. You would think he meant it. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria to the ends of the earth. It was always the plan that God's goodness would take up residence in the hearts of men and that our lives as we follow and live under the light and life of the Lamb would call others to join us. It was always the plan. The nations see the light through the witnesses. See the light through the witnesses. You know, we are the witnesses. Just last week, I was telling my dad, I was telling my dad about this message because I'm excited about it. Like, I just feel like there's revelation here, like to remind you, like if you're waiting for God to come and, you know, finish things up, I think he's waiting for, for the witnesses to rise up. And so I was telling dad about this and, and he goes, well, who do you think the two witnesses are, are going to be? And, you know, that's classic. That's kind of classic interpretation. That's how many of you kind of grew up interpreting Revelation. And I'm not saying that there's not going to be some ultimate version of this, some ultimate iteration. But, you know, I said, you all will be. Who knows? Who knows who it will be? I don't even know if it actually literally means two. I think it's speaking about something else. But okay, let's just say maybe someday the last, the last moment and the last, last day that God ties this whole thing up, maybe it will be two people. But I, I don't know who it will be, but I know who it is. I know who it is today. It's you, Dad. You're the witness. I'm the witness. It's you, Mom. 
It's you, sister. It's you, brother. It's you, friend. Like, where are the witnesses today? I don't know about tomorrow. I don't know about 10 years from now or 20 years from now or the day that finally, you know, the trump sounds and God and then Christ ascends. I don't know who the witnesses will be at that moment, but I know who the witnesses are in this moment. It's us. We're the witnesses. And we are the ones that God is trying to win the nations through. We are God's plan to rule and reign and establish his kingdom on planet earth. We are little old us, ordinary people who are courageous enough to stand and speak the word of the Lord and walk in his ways, even at risk of our own lives. We're the ones that win the world. Final thought, see the potential. The dark times are the best times to shine. The dark times are the best times to shine. Maybe God has placed you in your dark season. Maybe it's not just, oh, these bad things are all happening to me. Maybe he's like, I know this is hard, but this is a real moment for you to shine the life and light and grace of Jesus. You know, Paul told us he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. It's our job that God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. The good news, not counting people's sins against them. Someone just heard that today and you need to hear that again. In Jesus, your sins are not counted against you. You have been forgiven. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you. This is our message. This is our message. Hear our message. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Come back to God. He's so good. He's so kind. He's so powerful. He's so life-giving. He's so full of truth. He's so full of peace. There's healing in his wings. There's liberty in his presence. There's peace that passes understanding. He's not anxious. He's not afraid. He's not affected or infected or afflicted. Come and, and find out. Come and see. That's our job. The witnesses win the world. And this was the story of the early church. I'm just going to wrap up, but think about this. Think about the early church. You think about the first Christians who got this message. AD 96, John's still alive. The last living disciple. The last living disciple who was with Jesus. John had to think back, you know, remembering the day when Jesus commissioned the disciples. Remembering the, the moment in the upper room in Jerusalem when there was just 120 disciples who had caught the fire of the goodness of Jesus and had given their lives to serve and follow him. 120 of them. And they, he probably remount, remount, remembered the sound like a mighty rushing wind and the Holy Spirit coming and falling on the church like flames of fire, igniting and giving birth to the people of God. He would have remembered that on day one, 120 spirit-filled people went out into the streets and Peter proclaimed the good news. And in one day, it went from 120 to 3,000. This fire is contagious. Good news is contagious. Grace is contagious. And then on day two, it says 2,000 more people were added. And it just, it just started growing and going. And then what happens was, then history actually records this, powers started to come against the church because it was, it was starting to threaten the powers that be. Rome didn't like it. Jewish religion didn't like it. And so persecution flared up. A beast came against them. And we're told that the Christians actually had to scatter 
out of Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and all around the known world. And through that persecution, the gospel didn't die. It spread and grew. And if you fast forward through that little kind of microcosm, a little diorama of how it went, if you fast forward 300 years, the Roman Empire was virtually converted because people, real people, like you and like me in a real place in a real time, we're so convinced that Jesus is good news, worth sharing, that my life needs to bear witness to his rule and reign, and that even though I might die because of, I, because of taking this stand, I will live. The message of Revelation is, will the real church stand up? Cheer up. Your life is secure because of the lamb. Sin can't take you. Death can't take you. The bees can't take you. A virus can't take you. A pandemic can't take you. Cheer up. If God is for us, who can be against us? Be reminded that there is a lamb who is on the throne and he is for you. And then the message is rise up. Shine. Because through you, Jesus is drawing the nations to himself. So, I'll ask a final question. I'm going to ask this question for probably the next five weeks. What does it look like for the church to bear witness to the Lamb in our day? What does it look like for us to carry that flame that the first church carried through their time, right through Rome, right, right, right through the, the beast's territory? What does it look like for us to carry that flame now? What does a church on fire look like? And so here's what I want to do. This is, this is going to be fun. For the next few weeks, we are going to do a series within the series. We're going to stay in Revelation. We're going to do a, a, a micro focus. Before we move into the second half of the book, I want to get everything that it has to tell us about being witnesses in this world. And it actually gives us some clues. So we're going to do a little series switch and we're going to call this the Church on Fire edition of Revelation. And we're going to have some fun looking at the picture that John gives us through this image and giving us some clues as to what it means to live a life on mission as witnesses in the world where God has planted us. Here's a few questions and I'll pray and we'll be done. Question number one is this. Does your life bear witness to the Lamb? When the nations, when your friends, when your family, when your colleagues, when your coworkers, when they see your life, do they get a glimpse of Jesus' rule and reign and mercy and goodness? Question number two, this is for some of you who are especially going through dark times. We all are in some ways, but some of you are in very specific, difficult times. Here's a question I would ask you. It's a hard question, but I think it's true. What if God has you there to shine the light of his grace and goodness? Not to punish you, but to promote you for the benefit of someone else. What if God wants to show the oncology war what it looks like for a Christian to have cancer? What if God wants to show your colleagues what it looks like for a Christian to lose their job? Maybe he's got you in the darkness so that you can shine the light of the good news that is greater than any of these these light momentary afflictions. Number three, here it is. Christians during COVID. What if we, the church, stopped looking at the pandemic as something that's happening to us and we started looking at ourselves as something that's happening to the pandemic? 
What would it look like? What could the witnesses do? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you that you got it right the first time. Thank you for this reminder, Lord, that our job is not to sit and wait for you to come and tie up things nice and neat and tidy, but really you are looking at us to call the nations to yourself and that, God, you don't want to lose one single person. God, that you want every person to come to saving, living knowledge and and relationship with you. And so, God, thank you for the reminder that, God, we are the called, that we are the witnesses, that we are the ones that that you want to win the world through. Thank you, Jesus, that you are good news for all who hear. Thank you, Lord. I just want to speak right now. I want to pray right now over King's Church. I want to pray in the spirit of Paul even, who said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation, of the salvation of God for all who believe. Lord, would you reignite a passion for your name and your church in this hour like never before? Would you teach us in these coming weeks how to live the life of a witness? And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen.